Hey everybody, today's episode of Shoppernomics is brought to you by the Neuromarketing Science and Business Association, the only association for those with a professional interest in neuromarketing. Visit www.nmsba.com for events and membership details. And Decision Breakers, experts in behavior-based shopper strategy, insights, and activation. Email pmcgee at decisionbreakers.com to see how they can help you win your war in-store. Welcome to Shoppernomics, the podcast for marketing and insight professionals who want to stay current on the latest understanding of consumer behavior and decision-making. My name is Phil McGee, and this is the 25th episode of Shoppernomics, so I needed to make this one special, and I think you'll agree it will be, because my guest today is Dr. Herb Sorensen, a longtime friend, preeminent authority on observing and measuring shopping behavior and attitudes, and author of Inside the Mind of the Shopper, now in its third edition. He's now semi-retired, but he's been an adjunct senior research fellow at the Ehrenberg Bass Institute of the University of South Australia and scientific advisor to the TNS Global Retail and Shopper Practice. Dr. Sorensen is well known as the inventor of Path Tracker, a second-by-second method of studying shopper behavior in store using RFID technology. He's frequently quoted by major business media, including the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Business Week, and MSNBC, and was an expert on shopper eye tracking for the Dr. Oz Show. He's a brain trust panelist for RetailWire.com and writes a regular blog on Shopper Insights. It is a true honor to welcome Dr. Herb Sorensen. Well, thank you, Phil. I appreciate that. You're quite welcome. And, uh, and Herb, I have to say it, it was a challenge summarizing your bio because there's so much I could say about your involvement in Shopper Insights. Um, but is there anything more you would like listeners to know about you before we begin? Well, no, uh, let's, let's get it going. <laughs> okay. But well, there is something that, that is important to mention. Um, and it, cause I understand that you were awarded the Charles Coolidge Parlin Marketing Research Award. Um, and, and this is an award that's billed as the oldest and most distinguished award in the field. And, and that's quite an honor. So, so tell us how that came about. Well, and I might mention also uh, the thing that impresses me about the award isn't me, but uh, if you look at all of the awardees, you know, uh, you know, maybe 50 of them or whatever, yeah. uh, you, almost anybody, I'm sure everybody in your audience would, would uh, recognize at least a dozen of those names as uh, uh, top people in the, in the industry. Uh, anyway, and I, I don't, I don't really consider myself a top person in the industry. Uh, I'm a commentator on them. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, uh, I beg to differ, but uh, well, there you have it. What yeah. can you say? Um, well, that's that's really really impressive. Congratulations on that. I know that is an honor. Um, these are like lifetime achievement awards, I, as, as I understand it, right? So you you don't just do one thing and win the award. You you do a series of major successes and and achievements and contributions. And that's how you win the award um, if, if you're selected among those who even at that level. Um, that's correct. That's correct. Good. Well, so for this special edition of Shoppernomics, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to keep the discussion free flowing because um, I want you to talk about the things that are on your mind 
Um, and, and we'll talk as long as I can keep you on here because I know, I know people are going to be interested in, what, in the things that you have to say. Um, but just to get us started, uh, you know, I personally consider you to be the father of Shopper Insights, you know, having been an early pioneer in this space and just really setting the stage for those of us who followed. But, but what I find fascinating is that you actually got your PhD in biochemistry. So, so what led you from studying living organisms in laboratory environments to studying shoppers in retail environments? Well, I can uh, answer that uh, very briefly by uh, pointing out that uh, after a brief, uh, well, actually three, three four years uh, teaching in colleges and universities, Colorado State University was the last one I was at, okay. and from there moved to uh, Oregon uh, to United Medical Laboratories, which at that time was the world's largest clinical laboratory, about 1,600 employees, uh, processing maybe 10,000 uh, patients, not the patient, but the samples from the patients right. a day. So this was wow. a very large undertaking, and I was a young guy, and uh, but I was uh, uh, kind of at the top of my science and all that, and uh, a right-hand guy to the uh, founder and president of the company. Well, after a few years of that, uh, I, I, I abandoned clinical chemistry uh, after attending a conference uh, up in the, I think it was in Boston, uh, this was a conference on clinical chemistry, hmm. and uh, somebody there at the conference announced that uh, maybe, uh, you know, something like uh, 95 or 98 percent of all clinical lab uh, testing results are never even seen by the doctor. They come into the office and they're filed in the patient's file. Hmm. It's all part of, uh, you know, uh, protection against uh, lawsuits and things that might happen or whatever or whatever. Right. Okay, so uh, it's kind of like when I learned this, I sat there in that conference. I'm so out of here. <laughs> you know, there's no way I'm spending my life here, even though, I mean, I appreciated it. I loved it. I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, the science was great. <laughs> I am a biochemist. Okay. Sure. So I left and uh, started my own laboratory. I won't go into the detail of that because very soon uh, – uh, started my own laboratory doing food testing. Oh, that made a lot more sense to me. So I went to work for the food industry and, uh, and progressively moved into, oh, well, nutrition. Oh, well, nutrition labeling was just getting to be popular at that time. So that was a significant source of income, you know, uh, analyzing all kinds of food for their nutritional properties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I had a partner who was a microbiologist. And so we had a quite broad ranging uh, practice. And uh, after a few years, I became increasingly interested after doing sensory evaluation, which was an important part of uh, uh, analysis of food products. And typically that was done with a, a group of people uh, sitting around a table and you're serving them samples and having them fill out a questionnaire about the sample or whatever. And you're really looking at sensory properties. Okay. Okay. Just so you understand yep. uh, a, uh, <laughs> a uh, client Actually, he was my major client at the time. His boss said, well, our customers uh, aren't college 
students. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm slow, slow of thinking. And, uh, so I said to him, well, uh, who are your customers? He says, supermarket shoppers. Hmm. So <laughs> I went down to the local Albertsons and uh, told the, the uh, man that I'd like to come in and interview his shoppers and whatever. And I paid him 50 bucks a day for the privilege of coming into their stores that was the beginning of an operation that led us to doing uh, actually what I do today. But uh, initially, it was all about sensory evaluation, but we soon moved on to a much wider view of market research. And I soon moved on to out of the laboratory business completely into totally into market research. And uh, then in 2001 was the big move when instead of asking people uh, questions because I had long observed uh, disparities between reality and the answers they were giving me. I'll give you a simple example, like asking a lady, uh, "Do you use a, a shopping list when you shop?" And uh, she said, "Oh, I always have a shopping list." And then, uh, "Well, would you mind if I look at your shopping list?" And she says, well, let me see here. And she's rummaging around in her purse and here and there. Well, I must have left it home today. <laughs> the reality is, <laughs> the reality is she wasn't lying to me. I mean, I, I can't make this point too clear. Shoppers don't have a clue about what they're doing in the store. I'm sorry. If you're asking them and whatever, I mean, okay, I spent 20 years doing that at least. Yeah. Okay. And I moved to in 2001 to instead of uh, asking them, I moved from ask to observe. Hence the paper I suggested to you, uh, you know, about uh, how to observe, measure, and think about shoppers. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because yep. it begins with observation, and in, in uh, 2001, uh, I launched Path Tracker, and ultimately we tracked millions of shoppers on a second-by-second -second basis through stores all over the world, uh, and we were observing them uh, initially electronically by tracking, uh, you know, by tracking. Uh, uh, signals that they were emitting from their smartphones and right. such. But ultimately, we got into video tracking, you know, and and the whole nine yards, everything that I've done up to that that uh, you know up till now. And uh, I'm uh, I'm still pushing it forward. I mean, I have a very small staff. I'm retired. Uh, I'm not running a business myself, but I do have a colleague uh, who is. And I'm associated with people who are blah, 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 you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway. Just, just um, a, a small point, and then I've got a question for you um, to, to keep that line of thinking going. The small point is uh, there is a paper that if anyone has not yet read, uh, it's authored by Pete Fader of Wharton, and I believe it's called The Traveling Salesman. And it uses your path tracker data um, in a really, really cool way because one of the – one of the challenges of Path Tracker, and now it's been you know literally decades since I've read this paper, or at least a, a decade, um, but my memory is that you know when you put those data into a model, a model doesn't know that shoppers 
can't walk through gondolas, right? <laughs> <laughs> that they have to go to the end of the aisle before they can enter the next aisle, right? Uh, right? And models don't know that. And so if they don't, you know, if the data doesn't show a ping, um, at the end of the aisle, well, the model's just going to assume, well, they must have walked through the gondola to get there. And so I, I think that was one of the, the biggest uh, pro or modeling challenges that, that Pete had to work with. But, but what I really loved and found valuable, and, and frankly, I've used this in a lot of presentations myself, um, were the, uh, the clustering of common shopping trip types. Um, you know, from from quick trips to fill-ins to stock-ups and, and then even, you know, segments within and, and visually showing what these trips tend to look like and the, uh, the, the path directions shoppers tend to take. It's a wonderful, wonderful paper, and none of that wouldn't, would have happened without your data. Um, but I want to go back to the, the point you said before because I saw you present at the um, NNSBA's Shopper Brain Conference in New York last November, and you had a great quote which, which summarizes what you just talked about, and, 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 and I'll never forget it. You said, almost nothing I know about shopper behavior came from what shoppers have told me, but almost all I know is from what they have shown me. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, it, it, it's interesting that the, the big rage today is, is about behavior-based insights and behavior-based design. Um, but I think for you, there's, there's really nothing new here. Uh, these are just kind of old concepts uh, with new names. Um, in, in other words, is it fair to say you've been practicing behavior-based insights for pretty much your entire shopper career? Well, yes, although the, the first, let's, if we look at it 20 years before and then 20 years after uh, we started Path Tracker, before it was all about, uh, we did observe shoppers. Uh -huh. In fact, that's what led us to move to uh, uh, while we were interviewing them, okay? Yeah. But that's what led us to ultimately to instead of, uh, instead of asking, of uh, observing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so it, it, it revealed a uh, different uh, thing. Now, I, I, I'm going to just give you an example of this. Okay. Uh, because th this is one of the most stark facts about retail that is uh, widely ignored. Okay. Uh, you probably know, Phil, if you followed my stuff, you know, uh, what's the number of items that people buy in a supermarket. I don't mean what the items are. I mean, yeah. I'm calling count. What's the number, the most common number of items purchased? And this is true in supermarkets all over the world. Well, I, it's I, yeah, I, I do know the answer. And so I'm not going to say it because I'm, I'm going to let you enjoy that. I, I saw you actually <laughs> cite that, that figure in your New York presentation. Um, oh, but did. but okay. you did okay. the math, well, so you share the result. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. So, so yes, I, I'm, uh, yes. And it's one. Yeah. And, uh, further about that though, is that, uh, uh, further about that is that, uh, that's not true of every store. For example, in a Walmart, it's three. Mm -hmm. Even still. And, uh, two yeah. is the second most common. And one is the third most common. Mm -hmm. Then the curve looks the same as it does in a supermarket. Right. Or a Walmart supercenter. 
I mean, you, you, you have to look at this curve to see how it plunges. Okay. And, uh, I had a, um, uh, th this was the one retailer who was a client. Now, you know, I, my clients were always the major brands. Okay. Who hired me to go into the retailers. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I was always, I, I knew how to be welcome at the retailers and, uh, you know, uh, for the major brands and, uh, this, uh, presentation I was doing at this retailer and explaining some of these concepts and uh, pointing out this thing about one is the most common number purchased and then two, three, four on down the line. And this guy in the audience says, but our target demographic is the stock up shopper. Well, that's another way of saying we're not paying any attention to the crowd what we're paying attention to is the merchandise they're putting in their carts. Mm -hmm. And this is a very important point. Almost nobody understands diddly squat about actual true shopper behavior in the aisle. Shoppers themselves do not understand it. But I'm telling you, if you want to get to that final click in the mind when the eye sees the item they want, and there's a click. It's what I call autonomic triggering. Mm -hmm. It can be totally subconscious. Right. I could give you evidence of that. And you may actually purchase something in the store and leave the store uh, and get home and say, I don't remember buying that. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, somebody in your audience has probably had that experience. But I'm just telling you, because after you bought a, a certain item, a hundred times, come on. Right. Retailers and brands all want to have a conversation with the shop about what it is they're trying to sell them. Instead of paying attention to what is that trigger that makes it go click. Now, if you want, I can give you an example of one trigger. Sure. Because this one's really stark. But I, I, I want to tell you right now, uh, I'm obsessed about triggers. <laughs> okay. I think the rest of us are too, so go ahead. But but uh, I'm going to give you an example that will be clear to you, and that is, uh, you know, Tropicana has a, on the, uh, on the Tropicana package, there's a picture of an orange with a straw stuck in it. Yes. Okay, now... Uh, I haven't gone back and uh, recently and reviewed this, but I don't know whether it was 10 years ago or 15 or uh, 8 or whatever years ago. Uh, Tropicana hired a brilliant marketer who came in and revised their program and whatnot and, and, and redesigned the package. It did not include the orange straw on the package. Sales plummeted. Yeah, like by 30%, I believe, overnight. Oh, you knew about that. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, this is like one of the the biggest packaging design disasters um, yeah, the, yeah. the industry's ever you seen. Yeah, a reference to a paper on it, you know, because yeah. I, I, it saved me looking it up. But anyway, so the point is that when I talk about autonomic triggering, that orange straw is an autonomic trigger. Right. Now, the fact of the matter is there's lots of products that have autonomic triggers. And uh, 
trust me, out of a store, this is a major problem for retail. And I'm talking supermarkets, but it applies to all retailers, but especially supermarkets with 40,000 square feet and 40,000 items in there, there's maybe 100 or 200 that drive. Well, I think 100 may do a third of the total store sales Mm -hmm. out of 40,000. Yeah. Okay. This is a third of total total store sales. If you were running a store, you wouldn't worry about those. They're selling like hotcakes and you're having a hard time keeping them stocked. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly. So I've I've heard you present the work that you did that gave you these insights about, you know, the 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 average and mode number of items, you know, in a shopper's cart. Um, and, and also on a time basis, I think you've done the same. And, and I love how you took it to a point where, because I know you're very action-oriented, right? You're not just like, here's the insight, good luck. You're Here's the insight and here's what you do about it. You took it to the point where you said, you know, if you were to redesign a grocery store layout based on shopper behavior, based on these insights about trip uh, and, and cart composition, um, here's how it would best be done uh, from a, from a, you know, to meet, really meet the needs of the shopper. And, and it was quite, quite clever, quite radical. Um, I don't know if any retailer has ever tested it, but I thought it was very, very smart thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, look, uh, he, here's, here's the point. Retailers don't think in terms of the big head and the long tail. Right. Well, that's another way of saying retailers don't think in terms of managing sales. They manage inventory. The whole industry is kind of in a squeeze from this uh, non-focus on the shopper other than they want to be nice. They want to have soft music. They want to have a comfortable store. uh, They want everybody to be happy here. They hope you'll spend all the time you uh, that you can hear and uh, ignore the fact, I'm going to give you a, a, another statistic here, the longer it takes a shopper who goes into the aisle to buy a item, a single item, the longer it takes them, the less likely they are to buy a second item. Mm, On the other sense. hand, the faster they buy the first item, the more likely they are to buy a second and the faster they buy it, the more likely they are to buy a third. Right. Okay, if you just take that principle alone, you realize that the key to advanced sales volume is advanced speed of closing of sales. Now, you can provide all the attractiveness of the store and everything else and everything else that goes with it, and you can make it a very pleasant experience so that people spend as much time as you want. You know, maybe give them a free cup of coffee to get them to linger or what. I don't know. What the heck? I'm not a retailer, okay? Right, right, right. I have, I have a partner that is, but oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to comment. So, you know, I've worked both for CPG manufacturing and for CPG retailing. And, you know, retailers, they're getting much better um, in terms of, you know, sophistication and a, a desire to, you know, really improve this, the satisfaction of the shopping experience. And they've done extraordinary things with their, their store environments. But at the end of the day, you know, you're right. Their biggest 
um, area of, of interest, because I believe it's their, it's their biggest area of cost, is in inventory. Um, you know, after inventory, I think it's, you know, then comes labor, then comes, um, you know, the physical property and, and advertising. You know, that's, that's where the money is spent and that's where their attention is focused. Um, and that's why they rely so much on their, on their manufacturing partners to, to do the research that you've done uh, and, and bring them the insights. So, you know, as much as they would love to have the time to, you know, optimize their environments, um, it's tough being a retailer. You're, you're yeah, just yeah. constantly, constantly making decisions and you don't have time to, you know, sift through reports and data um, and, and try to yeah, triangulate yeah. things. Um, so, um, you know, really no so fault I'm of theirs. I'm on that 100%, Phil. Oh, yeah, I'm absolutely. on that 100%. Yeah. I'd like to point out, though, a, a retailer who's done a superb job of exactly what I'm promoting Except for <laughs> as soon as I name them, you know, you're going to say, well, wait a minute, yeah. you know, uh, you want me to name them? Sure. Costco. You know, what Costco does is uh, don't think about, oh, yeah, it's a big warehouse store, you know, whatever, uh, with only uh, uh, three choices for every item they have in the store. Yeah. Okay, that's not totally true, particularly with the large dollar ones. I don't know whether you know, I mean, Costco, is, you can look up the numbers, but I mean, Costco may be the largest jeweler in the country. I think they're, they're, a lar they're the largest, a lot of things in the country. I think they sell more wine than anyone yeah. else. I think they sell more diamonds than anyone else. Yes. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, okay, so, so but let, let, let's get, get, get back to this. Yeah. Then why the heck, don't they absolutely swamp the rest of retail? Well, one of the things that they, they have two things, they have two things that make them so super. Uh, well, everybody knows they're low cost. I mean, you know, you know, you know, you're going to go to Costco, you're Costco. That's the name of the store. Costco. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So cost is all, it's all about that. And so, you know, you go to Costco, you know, you're going to, but it's a huge store and it's a very limited selection Three items for most items, uh, which, by the way, uh, and I wrote a paper about this, you know, cho uh, choices of three. Uh, I mean, studies have been done on this. If you want to sell something to somebody, you want to offer them three options, choices of three, anything more than that. And you're just you're suppressing the sale because you're confusing the buyer. Right. And they don't know, well, which one, you know. So a retailer puts 40,000 items in here when uh, – uh, when a thousand would adequately serve the needs of 95% of their customers. Okay. But there's reasons why they have those 40,000 in there. And I know I may wander a little bit here, but the, 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 the uh, never think, I mean, I I'm focusing on the big head, right? The items that the shopper is focusing on what they're buying most, but never think that I'm against the long tail. And the reason is because the long tail has a magnificent, attractive property. Right. You've mentioned the big head and the long tail of assortment a few times now. And, um, and I believe it was, it was you that bought the insight to the industry that, um, you know, the importance of both of those pieces, that the, the big head uh, or the long tail attracts, but the big head sells. And... Um, 
And so that's why there was a period um, probably around 2010 or so when uh, the industry was, uh, you know, highly, highly focused on efficient assortment, in particular Walmart, um, got rid of like 30% of their SKUs store-wide. And it was, you know, about as bad of a disaster as the Tropicana package case study. Um, because, because no longer did they attract, you know, I think, you know, I, I remember reading yeah, comments yeah. from people saying, you know, I'd, I, I'd love to shop at Walmart if they had anything. I mean, the, the, the shopper backlash was, was substantial and, um, and, and based off of your insight, which was out, you know, at least five years before those actions were taken, you could have predicted that. Um, because yes, what they, they, they deprive people of what attracts them, you know, to, to their, to their stores in the first place. But, you know, at the same time, and, and you're also talking about this, which is shoppers value, even though they may not know they value it, they, they value a simplified choice. The, the problem is there is that tension between, I want to have a lot of choice, but I don't really want to make a choice because, you know, choices yeah, are, yeah. are effortful. They take a lot of time. They take a lot of cognitive resources. Yep. Um, and so there's kind of the illusion of, of, you know, I want choice when, when in fact they, they, they don't. And I think what Costco has done, and, and I don't know specifically how they do this, did this. I don't know if they, did this, um, you know, with intention or whether it just kind of happened, but somehow they've, they've, their shoppers believe that, well, Costco has really acted as an agent on my behalf. Um, I, I forgive them for not having a long tail because they've gone through the process of determining which choices are best for me. So when I, shop, when I, the shopper, walk into Costco and I see there's, there's three brands in a category, I'm totally okay with that because I know these are, these are three good choices, um, and then I can impose my criteria um, on only those three and then select the one that, that is you know, ideal for me. But yes, Costco is a great example. I'm glad you mentioned that because um, they are successful in, in a world where shoppers believe they want choice. Um, and we'll seek out retailers that offer that. If, if I were to buy a supermarket chain today, and there are ones that, you know, that would be high on my list, whether it was Albertson, Safeway, uh, Kroger, I would not seek to come in and overhaul what they're doing. Because of the attractiveness of the long tail. Right. I would not reduce my skew count because the shopper looks, my gosh, this guy has everything. And he's recommending to me that I buy this item. But right here beside me on one side is a item number two, and on the left is item number three, and that's about all I can handle. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to make my decision on a trigger. Right. I, I, I'm not, this is not a rational process. There's very little rational thinking goes on in a store. Any rational thinking is a massive sales suppressant. And anybody who's trying to communicate to the shopper by engaging their thinking process is on a fool's errand. 
Did I say that too bluntly? Uh, no, I think you're making your point <laughs> quite effectively, indeed. So let's, um, you know, you've learned a few things um, in your in your time uh, with all of the work that you've done in Chopper Insights. Um, you did talk quite extensively about whispering versus shouting at the New York conference. Um, and I think that's another universal truth that we should really highlight. Um, so let's talk about that. Um, whisper yeah, versus shouting. I, I hadn't fine. heard that before. I love, I, well, I've heard about it before, but, but not really in those words. And I think using those words helps really clarify and bring it to life. So uh, tell us, you know, how did you uncover that insight and, and, and what does one do with that insight? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, if you're asking me how, you know, I, I came to it or whatever, whatever, I'm not sure I could answer that. I mean, maybe if I uh, mold it for a while, I could come up with an answer to that. Well, it's probably the, the accumulation of, of just everything you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very focused on that click in the mind, which is what triggers the sale. I mean, there's something there that triggers the sale. And most people think the only way to get to that trigger is to go through all this mumbo jumbo like me, you know, and maybe shout and wave your arms and, and have signs on every, every item in this aisle has a tag on it that says, you know, super sale, super sale, super sale. Yeah. When you see that, all that tells you is there's an idiot running this store. <laughs> has no idea what's involved, you know. He thinks, you know, that somebody's going to, this is essentially screaming and shouting at the shopper. Yeah. Quietly, oh, very quietly, you know, but with waves of signs, you know. A lot of times end caps do this. By the way, I need to point this out on end caps. And this is, again, I, I highly recommend Glenn Turbeek's book, even though it's out of print, but you can still order it on Amazon. It's... uh uh, Glenn Turbeek did a tremendous amount of research in this area. And uh, one of the things that he, he showed was that when people purchase an item on an end cap, half of them are unaware that it has a special price. Right. The price is marked down or whatever. Mm. Okay. They don't even pay any attention to it. They're ignoring that. Here is a bunch of product right in your face. Oh, you know, yeah, great. I need some of that. Half of them that buy on that end cap are unaware that price is involved here. Right. The other half that are aware that there's price involved of it, half of those don't give a fig about the price. Hmm. Because the retailers, that you know, <laughs> they think it's all about the money. It isn't to the shopper. Right. They're the only ones that it's all, the money is what it's all about. And I understand if you understand retailing, you know, backwards and forwards, you know, yeah, for them, it's all about the money. You know, that's right. what it is. You know? Right. But, but it's not for the shopper. And uh, so this triggering, autonomic triggering, this click, on the in the mind that this happens on, and especially in a supermarket where people buy the same items over and over and over and over again, no need to shout like I do. You yeah. know, yeah, <laughs> you can whisper. <laughs> I think you know the, the visual you used in your conference presentation. You showed like an aisle where you know, imagine from a shopper's perspective walking into an aisle, and there are just signs everywhere. 
Yeah, you um, got it. You know, versus the whispering um, alternative, which is there's one or two signs, right? And and they're not, you know, with with blinking lights and and you know, two hundred two hundred point font. Um, it it's just, you know, it it's and and as I think you said, this this is really this appeals more to the subconscious because you know, um, the system isn't overwhelmed, um, and it really does focus the shopper's attention where where importantly their attention needs to be focused not trying to get them to focus on 100% of what the retailer has um you know overlooking the fact that 100% of what the retailer has isn't relevant but we're just we're shouting we're screaming and you know uh, someone I did a project for they once said that when everything is on sale nothing is on sale you know, yep. meaning you've yep. just overwhelmed their their visual and cognitive uh, abilities to process all this stuff, and so they 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 filtered out. Yeah, you know, and and as yeah, I, you know, I, I love that, Phil. I love that. I mean, you captured that, you captured that perfectly. Okay, so uh, you know, I'm looking at it and saying, you know, I want to be helpful, and if I'm talking to the brand, uh, I'm I, I'm going to suggest, you know. You need to figure out what trigger you have, and if you haven't got a decent trigger, you you darn well better get one. Uh, something it, it doesn't need to be a big blaring thing, but your brand needs to stand out, and it's best if it conveys what the hell it is that you're trying to sell here. I don't think the brands think that way. I don't think the retailers think that way because they don't know diddly about what the the shopper is what's triggering the shopper's mind. I'm talking about what's triggering the shopper's mind. You said uh, earlier that, you know, if you were to buy a grocery chain, um, you would you would not necessarily change the long tail, um, right? But but if you were to buy a grocery chain, um, whether whether your answer has anything to do with assortment or not, thinking about, these you know universal truths that you you have learned or heard about in shopper behavior. What would you do differently? What do you, what do you think a retailer needs to do in order to be more behavior based in, yeah, okay. cont- in so catering I'll, to their shoppers? You know, I'll give you a couple of things design wise. You yeah. know that I think are worthwhile. Okay. Uh, number one, uh, I would typically widen the aisles. A single dominant path is crucial. Uh, I'll give you an example of, uh, you know, uh, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, there's a chain up there in the, in the New England. Uh, 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 Stu Leonard's. Yeah, with serpentine eyes. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, 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 brilliant, brilliant. So uh, if, if I was uh, owned a supermarket chain, I would look for some way, most of them have a dominant single aisle on the perimeter of the store around the thing. And, and that, that's pretty good, you know, right. yeah. and maybe a, a, a one that butts down through the middle with yeah. uh, frozen food displays that are uh, below, below waist level. Open space attracts. Yes. Okay. This is a fundamental rule of retail. Open space attracts. And the narrower you make the space, it's like saying, don't go there. Right. Okay. And so shoppers don't want to go. Even if I had a uh, bought an existing chain, I would certainly take at least a store or two 
an experiment by uh, boosting from six foot to seven or eight foot wide aisles uh, in a couple of stores. And that's going to mean you're going to go through, uh, go through and eliminate every item that hasn't sold here in the last year. Right. I think that's safe. Yeah. I think that's a safe move. And uh, fill up the space that uh, give a little more space to all of the top selling items. And that means you just simply go to the transaction log, which, again, Mark has reported to me, no retailer does this. They don't go to the transaction log. They go to the transaction log with questions. Now, this is, a, this is an important point I'm making right now. Mm-hmm. Never ask the transaction log questions. No questions. Look and see what it's telling you. Mm. Listen to the transaction log. Don't be butting in and telling it, well, I want to know about this. I want to know about that. I want to know about the other thing. Shoppers don't give a fig what the, super, what the retailer wants to know and think and blah, 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 blah. We've already got billions of dollars have been spent on that. And it's uh, all to, to a little purpose, honestly. Yeah. When you go to the transaction log, you need to let it speak to you. And say, my, you know what the number one, maybe we talked about this, what the number one selling item in supermarkets all over the world is? I believe it's bananas. Yes. Yeah. Okay. If you sort all of the purchases in this store from what is the most common occurring PLU, um, UPC, sort them. Top to bottom, and look at that, okay, this is what I call the pinnacle of truth in the store. Absolute pinnacle of truth. Uh, So I spent, uh, you know, 20 years, I told you, 20 years asking questions that my brand clients wanted to know and getting the answers and everything. And in 2001, I invented Path Tracker and ultimately track millions of shopping trips on a second-by-second basis using RFID, video. uh, You know, I'm doing new things to this day. But the point of this, uh, always observing the total picture. The total picture. So one thing I've heard you talk very passionately about, um, which is rare for you to talk about anything passionately, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and on this topic of um, ranking uh, you know, transactions is you know, whether it's at a store level, department level, category level, and, but category level in particular, is that you would not just identify your top sellers, but you would give them special treatment in store, whether you were the retailer, um, but but maybe even more so the manufacturer. What what special treatment is that? I can tell you, now, if you look at uh, the second edition of the book, in the first chapter, I reported on a study that we did in a local supermarket chain, uh, a very good chain, uh, very representative of supermarkets, in which we put this little tag, top seller, and I forget the exact message, but it it said top seller, and then uh, in the fine print said, 
uh, uh, shoppers in this store have made this their number one choice or something like that. Yeah. Okay. But uh, those words, too many words, you know, just number one top seller or whatever is, is the trigger. Right. And it's a small tag, only maybe uh, uh, two inches wide and three inches high. Okay. Just a small tag. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> now you, you just put that right on the price label where everything else is you didn't we didn't change anything i mean whatever the supermarket was doing we left it alone we didn't touch it right we just put that tag on those things and we got a 41 percent lift across 81 items that we put those tags on 41 percent lift that's a in a, a perfect illustration of social proof at work Right? Yeah, but three years later, they still had those top seller tags on those items. Ah. They never they never took them off. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, um, you know, so, again, you've done so much work. Uh, you've bought so much um, thinking to the industry, as, as I described before, universal truths, things that will always be and should always guide um, as principles, um, activation. If people want to learn more about you and the work that you've done, um, or, or are doing, what, what's the best way for people to reach you? Do you have a website? Um, do you mind if people reach out and send you an email? www.shopperscientist.com. Now, uh, I used to write, uh, you know, several times a year, uh, what I call views. And you can read there on Shopper Scientist about where the where that came from and all that. I mean, I, I, I uh, uh, adopted that from uh, Bob Stevens, a longtime colleague, a close associate and friend uh, who had a 40-year career at P&G. Yeah. And uh, along when he was getting retired and whatever, we, we became very, very close buddies. But anyway, so I published these views every few months and and I have uh, backed off of doing that, uh, but still do once in a while. Yeah. But I would suggest that with the book and the views, and I would suggest you read every view from the first to the last, because there's a lot of stuff we didn't discuss here oh, sure. that you find there. Okay. And then you can email me anytime you like to, herb dot S-O-R-E. N S E N yep. at shopper scientist, one word.com. Perfect. Perfect. Well, this has been terrific. Herb, thank you so much for taking the time out of your, uh, your busy schedule to share your thoughts. Uh, this has been a, a great way to celebrate the 25th episode um, with, with someone who's just, again, bought so much thinking uh, and thought leadership to the industry of, of Shopper Insights. Um, it's been a real honor to have you on the show. And I thank you, Phil, for inviting me. I mean, uh, as you know, I, I like to talk. <laughs> well, when people have something to say, I, I like to hear them talk. So this is great. Uh, Herb, thank you so much, um, and we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'd like to give a special thanks to Decision Breakers for making today's episode possible. We'll see you next time on Shoppernomics.